Welcome to the Highland Park Community Church Podcast. Our goal is to serve and encourage you as you build a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as we study the Word of God together in this week's episode. And I wanted to get this up on the recording too, just so that we got obviously you can see we got a lot of people who aren't here tonight. So um, Kate and Butch and I have been praying about the direction of the church and where we want to go moving forward. And God has given us a new plan as we continue to switch things up and move by the Spirit. Um, so the first week of the month, we're going to continue service as normal, eat together, fellowship together. The second week of each month, we're actually going to go back to the basics. We're going to start talking more about salvation and sanctification and even uh, going through the word exegetically. So that we're just reading one chapter at a time and discussing it, kind of going over things. Um, because we really want to turn our attention to getting back out and meeting with the lost. Um, now that the fall is here, we're getting back into the winter. Um, the nicer months to be out on the streets since it doesn't typically get too cold here in Virginia. And so the last Wednesday of every month, this will be the last Wednesday of the month where we actually do a teaching. The last Wednesday of every month from now on, we're going to gather in the parking lot. We're going to pray together. We're going to ask the Lord for some prophetic words to see who we're looking for. And we're going to go treasure hunting into the neighborhoods. Um, so we're really excited about that. And then the third Wednesday slash fourth Wednesday, depending on how many Wednesdays there are in a month, we'll do a little bit more. We'll continue this series because I, I love the series that we're doing now. I want to finish this and finish talking about God's character and the Father because, again, like as we're building a, a family here, we're building it around the Father, right? So we need to continue to learn more about the Father, who He is, get into our own identity as sonship, and, and kind of move forward there. So we'll have... Um, We'll have a great mixture of getting back to the basics because you never want to lose sight of the basics. If you lose sight of the basics, you lose sight of the gospel, everything that's in it. But then also diving a little deeper back and forth. And then as we kind of continue to move forward, depending on who's coming in and who isn't uh, from out in the neighborhood, we might end up switching things up again to where we continue more of the basics throughout Wednesday nights in general. And maybe we'll get into switching up more of the... Um, more of the meat of scripture into a different night and transferring it to a different night. Um, so there's that. Um, so let's, let's pray and then we'll recap a little bit of what we've learned so far and we'll get into slow to anger. Um, cause there's a lot to talk about as far as God's anger goes. We're not going to finish it tonight. It's gonna, honestly, it's going to take several weeks. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna intro it tonight and see how far we get and kind of go from there. So, Abba, we come before you in the name of Jesus and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Highland Park. We lift up Highland Park to you. We want to see Highland Park saved, healed, delivered, set free. Abba, we um, speak against just the God of this world, Satan, and the veil that he's put over the eyes here. We ask, Lord, that you would remove those eyes, we ask that you send us the people of peace. You've given us a vision for discipleship in the neighborhood, um, having dinner with people, getting into getting into their homes and just loving them the way that you did. And we just ask for people of peace that we would be able to meet and do that with. We ask that you continue to fill us with your, with your spirit uh, and knowledge of you. Um, and we just thank you for everything that you've been doing in our lives, the awesome testimonies that we heard before this, and, and even the new plan, um, because you love to switch things up. So we thank you for the obedience that, we've, that you've given us, the strength to walk in before now. We ask for more strength, more grace to walk in obedience as we move forward. Abba, we love you. We give you all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. So the past several weeks, we've been going over Genesis 34, verses 6 through 7, which says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
Yahweh, Yahweh, a, a compassionate God and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, we've talked about compassion and how amazing God's compassion is. Um, how His compassion is related to the Hebrew word for womb. So He loves us like a mother loves their defenseless, vulnerable child. Last week we talked about grace and how gracious God is that He is both, He shows favor, He is gracious, He's favorable, um, he's also elegant and charming. And then we worked into the, to the New Testament a little bit and talked about New Testament grace, which is actually not divine favor. It is actually God's divine influence and empowerment on the human heart and the reflection of it in a person's life. That was really only the last five minutes of last week's teaching because we had to sum things up because it was 830. Um, but Dr. Ronnie, could you give us those verses out of Genesis again? It's Exodus. Exodus, Exodus. 34. 34 okay. uh, I got that. Verses 6 and 7. Right. In context, this is when God reveals himself to Moses as he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. Okay. That makes more sense. Um, a little bit more background on the verse again. This is the first time that God reveals his character by himself. So up to this point, anytime that the character of God has been revealed in Scripture, it's been someone else talking about Him. This is God actually talking about Himself here. This is why these verses are so important. The other thing that's interesting to note is that this set of verses, particularly verse 6, is the most quoted verse in the Bible in the Bible. And what I mean by that is the Bible quotes this verse more than any other verse throughout Scripture. Sometimes it is word for word. Sometimes it's a mixture of the words. They modge-podge it together. Um, pretty cool. It's, I mean, I'm growing to really love it more and more. So, tonight we're going to be talking about the phrase, slow to anger, that God is slow to anger. And I'm very excited. I've been doing a lot of research on this because the anger of God is one of the things that non-Christians have a lot of issue with. But they only have issue with it because they don't actually read the Bible. They take verses out of context and they don't actually read what's going on. So before we get into any of that stuff, let's actually look at the phrase slow to anger. It's a combination of two Hebrew words, H750 and H639 which spell out Erek Apaim. And this has been translated in various ways throughout history in English translations. Some translations say slow to anger. The King James actually is probably the most accurate, uh, which means long-suffering. King James specifically says long-suffering. Oh, how I wish we were more long-suffering like the Lord. So the literal translation of the word, though, is actually long of nose or long of nostrils. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I love it. So the Hebrew phrase to become angry or his nose became hot is he came. And this this phrase appears 56 times in the Hebrew Bible. And we're going to look at some of those, but I, I want to talk about... Um, these two words for a second. Erek is the word for long in, in the Bible, and it's used in many different ways. Uh, one of the most common words is phrases is when they're describing the wings of an eagle, the eagle having long wings. And then apayim is the plural for apa, which is nose or nostril. And so when it's what it's saying here is it's you have uh, long, long nose that has two nostrils is what it's saying. And the reason why it's saying this is because in, in English, when we think about 
idioms and metaphors for being angry, we say, oh, that person's hot-headed, right? They're blowing smoke out of their nose. They get so angry. So in the Hebrew, the term for being uh, an angry person is actually to have a short nose, to have smoke coming out of your nose, to be hot-nosed. Whereas God is saying here that he is long-nosed. It takes a long time for him to get angry. It takes a long time for smoke to come out of his nose. When we look at, I mean, we're not going to go there, but if we look at Job and we look at Leviathan, it says Leviathan is the king of the children of pride. And it says that he has a hot nose because he's, he's angry all the time. And he has smoke coming out of his nose, even though he's a sea creature. That's how angry he is. That smoke is just constantly, you know, coming out. Um, and this, this type of phrase happens several times throughout the Bible. And I, I just think that it's really interesting because when we think about, when we, when we think about the Bible and, and when we study things, oftentimes we study it so literally that we miss the poetry, the elegance of God. Going back to what we talked about last week, the word gracious, God is gracious which means his word is gracious because Jesus is his word become flesh. So when he's describing things, he chose the Hebrew language for a reason. There are so many metaphors and idioms that mean so much that we miss out on if we study it so hyper-literally that we, we don't see the, the elegance and the charm and the beauty behind the artwork that actually is the Bible. Uh, as much as the Bible needs to be studied in a scholarly way, which I love to do, and I get too caught up doing sometimes, one thing that I want to point out is that we can't miss the poetic beauty that is the Bible because even though it is a scholarly book to be studied in many ways because of our faith, we want to be able to understand it and explain it to people. One of the best ways to understand it and then explain it to people is to see it through the lens of an artist because God is a potter and we are his clay and he's amazing. He's just so multifaceted, multicolored, right? Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of that. Let's, let's look at, let's look at this phrase to become angry or his nose became hot because it really, uh, paints a better picture of, of some things in first Samuel 17. Verse 28. We're just going to pull some verses out of context because we're just looking for the phrase. We're not actually looking for the context of these. We're just, we're just bouncing around phrases. So in verse 28, it says, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down here, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the evil of your heart, for you have come down that you might see the battle. So that phrase, Eliab's anger was kindled against David, in some translations it actually says his nose became hot towards David. Um, King James and, and, and other verses, other versions like that. I have a modern English version, so you're not going to get the poetry behind it right now through mine. Um, but that phrase is still there. It's still underneath everything. We go to Exodus 4:14. Mine's too literal. Let me pull out my handy-dandy smartphone for a second because I wanna, want you guys to see the poetry here behind this. That's not the version I wanted. Exodus 4, 14. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well, and also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. So again, the anger being kindled there. Um, Genesis 39, verse 19.
When his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your servant did to me, he then became enraged. Or his nose burned hot. So those are three examples of this verbiage that happens throughout the Bible of God becoming, of people becoming hot-nosed. Um, so when we look through examples of God's anger in the Bible before we actually get to the first couple times it happens, one thing that we need to know and we need to recognize and why it's so important for us to actually look at God's anger and talk about it is that God's hot anger and wrath are a major reason why people struggle to read the Bible and even struggle to see God as a good and loving father. I think each of us have been Christians long enough to meet somebody who says something along the lines of they don't believe in God because of how angry he is. They don't see how he can be a good and loving God because they see so much anger from God in the Bible. These words are fairly common in the Hebrew Bible and they depict God in ways that make a lot of people uncomfortable. But when these statements are taken out of the immediate context and read independently of the larger biblical storyline, they can be used to create a portrait of God that is imbalanced and distorted. If you were to simply list all the statements about God's hot wrath and read them aloud, the words of Exodus 34.6 would sound hollow. They would mean nothing. We need to learn and appreciate the metaphorical descriptions of God's divine anger and understand the reality to which they point. The intense emotion God experiences when his people betray him and embrace their own self-destruction. Now, I want to go back for a second and I want to talk about the reasons why anger make us, makes us uncomfortable. You know, we, we live in a society where we're told anger is bad and that we should never be angry. And we even have scripture to back things like that up. In Ephesians, it says that we need to put away all anger and malice. I mean, there's a, there, there's a section of Hebrews, a couple, I think it's two verses that actually list nothing but synonyms for anger and, and enragement. So we would have plenty of reason to be uncomfortable with anger, especially if we've grown up in homes without love, if we've grown up in homes with abuse, if we have experienced abuse from colleagues, whether at school or at work, uh, bosses, you know, most, most bosses uh, think that the best way to run a company productively, or at least it used to be, I don't think it is anymore, is through anger and appearing angry all the time and, make, and belittling their employees. That's not the way that God does things. So oftentimes we feel ang- we, we, ha- we are uncomfortable with anger because of past experiences of anger, someone else's anger hurting us, someone losing control while they're angry. But we fail to realize that anger can be a good emotion that protects us. Mm -hmm. For instance, God's anger is what comes against Satan in Revelation. When God pours out his final cup of wrath at the end, it is through Jesus coming against the Antichrist, coming against the whore of Babylon, coming against Satan with fury in his eyes. I mean, his eyes are on fire. That's how, that's how angry he is about the injustice and the sin that has come about. We fail to realize that sin makes us angry and it's okay to be angry at sin, right? And so when we talk about anger, we have, and God's anger specifically, we have to learn how to differentiate between, between the reasons why we are uncomfortable and what is actually biblical. Because as a father, and there are several parents in the room, right? As a parent, if something came against my child and it was a danger to my child and it did not stop even though I told it to stop or I tried to come against it, I would become angry and I would hate to see what the product of the next meeting that we had with that thing that was endangering my child would be. Uh, specifically if it's a person or a demonic entity. Now, if it's like a socket, that's a little bit different. You got to 
make sure your son's not sticking his fingers in a socket, right? I mean, there's a time and a place for everything. But I bring all that up to say, there might even be some of us in the room that are uncomfortable with God being angry and we avoid the verses about his anger at all costs. I know when I was first saved, I was one of those people. But in order to have a full picture of who God is, we have to learn how to see him rightly and be comfortable with the things about him that make us uncomfortable because that's the only way we're going to grow and understand the full picture of who he is and understand ourselves better. Because there are plenty of people who think demons hide under every rock. And I'm not saying that they aren't really close by to those rocks. But what I would say is that not every emotion that we have is demonic, even if it's negative. God has what we would deem as negative emotions as well. That's why he gets angry, but he's slow to anger. And we have to recognize that even though we deem something negative, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. There are plenty of things that God created that have no moral implications at all. What we do with those things is what determines the morality behind it. And when God is angry, it's not immoral. It's the most moral thing that he can do in that moment because he's God and he makes the rules. So we have to be able to see that rightly and come to terms with it so that we can grow ourselves. So having said all of that, addressing all of that, a couple questions we're going to throw out and then we're going to look at. First one is, who is the first person that God gets angry at in the Bible? Does anybody want to take a guess? Was it? Yeah, I would guess. <laughs> no, actually. No, he asked that. Yeah. No, thank you for saying. And what? A person Lucifer? or a demonic entity? Just b- biblically, as the Bible's written, who's the first person recorded that God gets first mad at? Mention. First mention. Because there's a law of first mention in the Bible, and, and it sets up how the rest of the story goes every time there's a first mention of something. Okay, so maybe you can't. Mm-mm. No, so maybe. Okay, so maybe you can't. It would be Lucifer. No, not even that. I, I mean, so so that's probably true storyline wise. Yeah. But it's not the it's not the law first mentioned in the Bible. So okay, so maybe maybe we're not gonna look at maybe it's gonna be hard to find the the person. So let me ask another question. In what biblical story does God's anger first appear? Maybe let's rearrange the question a little bit. Where do you think you see God's anger appear first in the Bible? Sodom and Gomorrah. No. Genesis six. Noah. Noah. Jonah. No. All right. All great questions. So get this. It's not found in the stories of Adam and Eve, or the flood or even Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not until you're 54 chapters into the Bible that you see God first get angry. And it's actually in Exodus 4, verses 10 through 15. The first person that God gets angry at is Moses. So let's read it. Give the verse again. Exodus 4, verses 10 through 15. Well, that doesn't prove that he's slow to anger. Yeah. 54, I mean... Dang, man. All the stuff that's going on in Genesis. Uh, so, so this is this is fascinating. Exodus 4, verses 10 through 15. It says, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech, and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who has made the dumb, or the deaf, or the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you must say. He said, O my Lord, send, I pray, by the hand of whomever else you will send. Here it is. The anger of the Lord was inflamed against Moses, or the Lord's nose burned hot. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also he comes out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you must do. Isn't that? reference again? Exodus 4, 
15. I became the charge to go talk yeah. to Pharaoh. Yeah. yeah. Not Jermaine. So, so here's, a little, here's a little background about this section. Because when we read this section out of context, we miss a lot that happens in chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. So this is, this is a very important to realize because God gets angry, but it takes two chapters of a conversation for him to get angry. And I mean, this conversation is going on for a while. We have to keep in mind that this is when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. So as, as we go through the entire story, you will find that this is Moses' fifth objection to God's commission to send Moses to confront Pharaoh. He denies God five times, and that's when God gets angry. What we also have to see is that God's anger in this moment, this is, this is something that I find very interesting because oftentimes we think of God's anger as something that really comes against people and hurts people. But get this, God's anger does not lead to punishment or violence mm -hmm. at all. In fact, God makes a concession to Moses' stubbornness and fear. And in time, we see mention of God's anger in the poem recounting the parting of the Red Sea. So let's take a break from this for a second. We're going to come back to it. Let's go look at the Red Sea poem in Exodus 15. You guys don't have to flip there because we're going to come, I mean, we're going to come right back to, to this and we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But in Exodus 15 verses 4 through 8, if you want a scripture reference for this. So this is the second time that God's anger is mentioned. And it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has thrown into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is gracious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send out your wrath, and it consumes them like stubble. So it's clear by this that God gets pretty angry at, at Pharaoh. And that's why a lot of the things happen, right? Um, the last time that God's hot anger is mentioned in Exodus, again, because we're just painting a picture because this is the first book of the Bible that God's anger appears at all, is in chapter 32 during the golden calf story after they build the golden calf. We're going to start in verse 7. We're going to read through 14. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Go and get down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have, conquered, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and certainly it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone so that my wrath may burn against them and I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people whom you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought us out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent of this harm against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore to yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all the land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Then the Lord relented of the harm for which he said he would do to his people. Well, a guy that claimed he couldn't speak very well, he spoke pretty well. Didn't he? Woo! Yeah. Oh, man. So, so this is the first story uh, in Exodus where God's anger is actually associated with killing or any sort of punishment of any kind. And in fact, it is an exception, not a rule. Very rarely does God send out his anger in a form of punishment or death or killing of any kind. 
This is not the first time that God has brought judgment or even death as a result of human evil. However, it is the first mention that he would do anything like this out of his anger. So what makes this story so important? To answer that question, we have to go back and trace the theme of God's judgment as a response to human evil so that we can appreciate the full force of this new connection between God's anger and judgment. So as we look through Genesis, I think we're all pretty acquainted with Genesis. If you're not, I recommend that you go reread it. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. Anytime God casts judgment in Genesis against any sort of people group, it's not out of anger. It's actually out of sadness and despair. He's sad and sorry that he makes humanity in Genesis 6 when he's talking about, or is it 6 or 7? I guess it is 6, isn't it? The beginning of 6. Um, when he's talking about the people groups there and saving Noah for himself, the reason why he wants to destroy humanity is because he's sad. When he sends Cain out as a punishment, it's not because he's angry at what Cain did. It's because he's sad that there's death there. When there's Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sins. It doesn't actually connect any sort of emotion to what God is doing there, from my knowledge. But if we trace the theme of why God is punishing them or giving sort of any sort of chastisement, it's probably because he's sad that they weren't obedient. He creates a covenant with these people and then they're not obedient. When we look at Babel, uh, it's not because he's sad or angry or anything. He just thinks that humanity at this point in the story is we're too smart for our own good as we stay connected together, right? Plus, if you do your research, it was all under the kingship of Nimrod, and Nimrod wasn't a nice guy. So there's also that. But that's extra biblical stuff that we don't need to get into right now. And, and as you go through the judgments and things that happen throughout the rest, Sodom and Gomorrah is actually because God is sad that they're in so much sin. It's not because he's angry at all. Um, in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah's story lines up very well, very, very... Um, almost parallel with the things that are happening in Genesis 6 in Noah's time, which is interesting. Only rather than the sons of God, the angels descending upon the daughters of men, when the angels, the sons of God, come to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's reversed, and it's actually the men who want to sleep with them, which is a weird thing entirely. But neither here nor there, let's get back to God's anger, because when we look at God punishing anybody throughout the Bible. You, you'll see this over and over again. You see it with David. He doesn't punish David out of anger. He punishes David out of sadness. Um, so, uh, now there is the cup of God's wrath that happens a lot in the prophets, which we're not going to get into tonight. We just don't have enough time. But I do want to finish this, this idea with Moses because I want you guys to see how God's anger actually does develop throughout the story, typically. And maybe you'll see it in your own life as we get through it. So if you go back to Exodus 4, we're going to look at verses 13 and through 15 again. Just as a little reminder, because I know that I covered a lot in a few short minutes. It says that Moses said, O oh my Lord, send, I pray, by the hand of whomever else you will send. And the anger of the Lord was inflamed against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also he comes out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad of heart. You shall speak to him and put his words, put words in his, excuse me. You will put words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And he will teach you what you must do. All right. So get this. The first appearance of God's anger in the Bible tells us something very important. Notice here that God does not harm Moses. Rather, we're told that God is angry and then proceeds to give Moses what he wants. Moses' choice leads to the elevation of Aaron as a high priest and Moses' own eventual diminishment as leader over Israel. If you study out Exodus 3 and 4 very carefully and then you look at the role that Moses takes over and over again when Israel messes up. 
God is offering Moses the role of high priest over Israel in these moments, but he rejects it and therefore God gives it to Aaron like Moses wants. I was thinking, thinking about how much he, he must have regretted that when the, uh, he came up with the golden calf. Yeah. Pretty strong regret. There. See? Here we go. You're, the patterns. This it is reminds the, me of Elijah yeah. and Elisha. When Elijah was like, oh Lord, yeah. strike me down. Mm-hmm. And it was like, alright dude, you need to anoint Elisha now. <laughs> yeah, you're done because you don't want to be obedient anymore. Alright, so get this. In God's divine anger and its development in the Bible story, God is usually the rule. Now, there are exceptions, okay? Uh, To every single one of the rules that we see in the Bible, there's typically an exception. What I want us to see as we read the biblical story is that oftentimes we see ourselves as the exception and we're not. We're the rule. So when you see rules in the Bible or you see a pattern develop in the Bible, most likely you're going to be fitting into that pattern. It's very rare that you get to be the exception to that pattern. Does that make sense? Yeah. A lot of times we want to see ourselves as David when really we're disobedient Israel that don't want to go and fight the, fight the giants. We want to think that we're Caleb and we're Joseph when we're, in reality we're those 10 other guys that got really scared of how big the grapes were, right? Like we need to remember that God is so gracious towards us when we mess up because oftentimes we fit into the rule of the Bible, not the exception. I'm not saying that we won't fit into some exception. I don't want you to think that you're not special and God doesn't favor you because he does. But I also want us to be real about where we're at and where our sin and what kind of sins we're committing. So when you look at this story of God's anger in the Bible, God's anger is typically only kindled towards people betraying him after they have made a covenant with him. And in fact, when you look at the nations of the world in in the Psalms, when God is angry at the nations, he's actually not referencing the nations themselves. He's referencing leaders of the nations. And if we've done any study in spiritual warfare, we know that there are principalities over each nation. So he's not even calling out the people of that nation and saying that he's angry at them. He's angry at the principalities that are leading and deceiving those nations. Right, So he's angry at the enemy, but he's, he, when he does actually get angry, he gets angry at his own people for not fulfilling their end of the covenant. What is that scripture says to, to him who much is given, much is expected? Right. Yeah. So let's go to, let's go to Genesis 32. And we're going to... Henry picked up, picked up what we were trying to, what, what the Lord is laying down here. I, I really appreciate that. So, <laughs> we go to Genesis 32, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods which will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up. What did I say? I'm sorry. Exodus 32. I went the wrong way. We're talking about the golden golden calf story. Um, So the people said to Aaron, Come, make us gods which will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, break off the gold earrings that you have in, your e- in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off gold earrings that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. He received them from their hand and fashioned it in an engraving tool and made it into a molded calf. And they said, this is your God. O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. So, let's recap. God rescues his people and brings them close to himself. This is God heightening his own investment in his people. He's invested in them. He cares deeply, right? It just said, we, we read it in the beginning of Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The first thing that God mentions about himself is that he is compassionate and gracious. Two probably the most important aspects about who Yahweh and Yeshua are. 
But in doing this, God makes the humans involved more accountable to the covenant he makes with them. Therefore, when they do break it, they are deserving of his anger. And notice that the first narrative about God's anger in Exodus 4, in the commissioning of Moses, leads to Moses' own role in the second narrative about God's anger in this section of verses. This is the last time in Genesis, th- or, I'm sorry, in Exodus 32 that it, it is mentioned that God is angry in this book of the Bible. The first time he's angry at Moses because Moses rejects the calling of high priest. Moses wants to give it to Aaron. God says, okay, we'll do that. I'm angry, but we'll do it. And then look at what happens. Aaron doesn't stand up for the Lord and he allows the people to be led astray by something golden because that's what they were used to in Egypt. I often wondered why Aaron wasn't the one to go up to the mountain and meet with the Lord because he was the high priest. He was. He was. But he wasn't what God intended. And when we look at when we look through the themes in the Bible, no matter what the people want, there's something specific that God intends to happen. And so he makes exceptions for that intention, whereas the people get the rule. Does that make sense? So when we when we look here at God's anger. Um, we see that he di- he diverts God's anger. Uh, Moses diverts God, God's anger in a number of ways, right? Intercession, appeal to the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then his own self-sacrifice. Later on, he says, if you don't go, I won't go. If you're not going to lead us, if it's just going to be an angel, I don't want to go, right? Um, this, this is Israel's foundational fail narrative, when we think about how bad Israel fails, we typically always come to this golden calf story. Mm-hmm. It is the most popular because it is the first. It may not be the worst. It definitely isn't the worst, but it's, it's up there, right? Because in this section of scriptures, they break the first two commandments that God gives. I mean, it just came right off the map with the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah. the first two. Right. You, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall make no images of these gods, right? So... He breaks God's first two commandments. And this is why God's anger gets hot against these, his people. God is angry by the betrayal and covenant violation that his people make. God being slow to anger means that he won't become angry for just any reason. His anger is aroused by specific acts of betrayal from his covenant people. It's the only time he gets angry. He's very slow to get anger. I mean... If we look at our own personal lives, how often has the Lord actually reacted to you and something that you've done out of anger? Not often. I can't, maybe once or twice have I ever heard the Lord like raise his voice against me that I was discerning correctly. And most of the other times that I heard him raise his voice against me, it wasn't because I was actually hearing him. It was because I was interpreting what he was saying through the lens of my own projections of how my father would react to things or my mother would react to things. God does not react in an angry way very often towards anyone in particular. Sin, yes, almost always. But anyone in particular does not happen unless it's a repeated betrayal and disobedient act is something that he has told us directly to do. Um, so, so chronologically where we are in Exodus, mm-hmm. he had already made the covenant with Moses, right? The Mosaic covenant is already mm-hmm. established. Yep. In um, Exodus. And that, that covenant is a conditional covenant depending on how the people respond, whereas the Abraham covenant was unconditional. Mm-hmm. Right, because he made it with himself. Yeah. And, and uh, Abraham was just the recipient. Abraham's lineage was just the recipient of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, throughout, throughout the wilderness narrative of Israel, we see God's anger kindled a couple other times. We see it once in Numbers 11, verses 1 through 6. We see God's anger kindled three separate times in Numbers 14. So when they numbered the people? 
Um, I mean, we can go there and look at it real quick. I just know it's getting late, so I didn't want to. I just wanted to throw the scripture references out there, but let me go take a look at it. Fourteen. Numbers what again? Numbers eleven. This is when they in Numbers eleven is when they complain in the desert. The land swallows them whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in in uh, Numbers fourteen, it is where Israel refuses to enter Canaan after they've sent the spies in, and then Moses again has to intercede for the people. And then in God's anger. He kills rebels. Then when the plague breaks out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the last time in the wilderness narrative that God's anger is mentioned is, I believe, if I remember correctly, is actually as a warning in Deuteronomy 31, verses 15 through 18. I'm just going to read that real quick. It says, The Lord appeared in the tent of the pillar of the cloud, and the pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise up and begin to prostitute themselves after the gods of the foreign foreigners of the land, where they are going to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will burn against them on that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many disasters and troubles will befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these disasters come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day from all the evil things which they shall have done, in that they turned to other gods. So, God still, I mean, God, God's so all-knowing. He, he knows this. He knows the end from the beginning, and he still chooses Israel. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I know why because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But it's like, you know the end from the beginning. You could have chosen any people group, and this is the people group you choose. Come on. Uh, but God is gracious and compassionate way more than I am and much slower to anger than I am. So... He's way better than I am when it comes to choosing people. And honestly, he didn't necessarily choose the people first. He chose the land. He chose Israel as a, as a country. Well, didn't even choose that. He chose his son, Jesus, first and foremost. And Jesus chose Jerusalem as, his, as the place that he would rule from. And because of Jerusalem, God chose Israel. And then you keep backing up from there, right? So, but when we read this section of verses... One thing that we need to notice is that God's anger is expressed through the withdrawal of his divine presence and power. I will hide my face from my people and I will refuse to look at their sins. This withdrawal will expose Israel to the forces of disorder and death, just as the flood and the ten plagues on Egypt were a kind of hiding of God's face where creation sank back into darkness and disorder. Because when we look at the Exodus story and how God went about the ten plagues, they aren't just God calling out the gods of Egypt or the Elohim of Egypt. That is what he's doing, but he's also demonstrating that not only can he create, he can uncreate Isn't that interesting? For every plague that happens, you can trace it back to one of the days of, of Genesis 1 and see how it relates. Yeah, it reminds me of the mother that's saying to the unruly kid, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. <laughs> now, when does a mother typically say something like that? When she's angry, right? So, this... Uh, this is this is important when we when we look at how God deals with us as well. He promises never to leave us or forsake us, 
However, if we're honest, we know when there's a difference between how we recognize His presence and how His presence comes to us. And in our maturity, we need to recognize how God wants to deal with us in different ways. Sometimes, I hope, most of the time, it's because He's trying to get us to learn how to recognize Him in different circumstances. However, if we're honest, there have definitely been areas of our life where God has pulled His presence away and He goes silent because we didn't listen. And that's when we need to go back and remember the last thing that God told us and move forward from that place. That's, that's quenching the work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And grieving Him, too. Because remember, most of God's punishments He's and judgments... There. He's still there working on us. We just we grieved Him. Yeah. So He's gone quiet. He leaves us to our own devices. Okay, if we... Like he's up here like on the, the road ahead of us. Beat like, you up a little bit. Sat down <laughs> but I'm still here. Um... And sometimes, you know, as kids, maybe our earthly fathers, that's the way they punished us too. They just walked away. Or they became oh, silent. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're about to scruff your oh, neck, right? My God. <laughs> I've begged them to walk away. <laughs> I have a spiritual experience. Oh, <laughs> So, when we. When we think about God's presence, and the more we teach on spiritual gifts, the more I I can get into this. But one thing that I want us to realize when it comes to spiritual gifts, this is just a little nugget as we close up, is that when it says that God's gifts and callings are without repentance in Romans 11, that's talking specifically about Israel and Israel's plan in God's redemption. And then if you want to take it and use it towards any sort of gifts that God gives, it's Romans 12 gifts, which are technically called the gifts of the Father if you're going to give them, um, if you're going to separate them. And when you actually look at what those gifts are, they're usually personality gifts. They, they function very well with people's personalities, not necessarily the Ephesians 4 gifts and not the Holy Spirit gifts of 1 Corinthians 12. It's called motivational or redemptive gifts. Right. They are, that's another name for them. Right. Um, so, but when we look at how, so if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we stop flowing in gifts of the Holy Spirit when we're in sin and we're not listening to God? Mm-hmm. It's not that He doesn't want us to flow in those gifts, but because we quench and we grieve the Spirit, He pulls away. And if the Holy Spirit is pulling away, those gifts are only pow- empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right. right? They're not motivational gifts. They're not redemptive gifts. They're the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So to say that your gifts and callings all of them overall are without repentance would be a twisting of scripture because some of the gifts that you would be using from God, if we're looking at all three sections of gifts in the New Testament, don't manifest when you're in sin or they have a harder time manifesting. And when they do manifest, it's because God is compassionate towards you and to the person you're praying for, not necessarily because he approves of what you're doing, right? So, um, So to close up tonight, uh, God's anger is His just and measured response to the covenant betrayal of His own people. It is not a volatile or unpredictable explosion of abusive anger that unbelievers or non-Christians make it out to be. In fact, the most consistent response of God's anger is to give people what they have chosen, even if it leads to their own self-destruction. The anger is expressed as exile from God's presence or in the hiding of his face and the removal of his protective or decreating power. Um which again, when we go back and we look at the times that God actually punishes people, he punishes or brings about any sort of destruction. It's actually out of his sadness and his grief towards what he created, not actual anger towards the people that are in front of him. Um, We'll see this later as we continue to go into this, if we go into this deeper. But 
when you look at why Israel is exiled, they're exiled because they kept choosing other gods. And God said, okay, if those are the gods you want, those are the gods that are going to protect you. I'll be over here when you're ready for me. You know, when we look at um, some of the other things that happen throughout the Bible, you know, Jonah is a great example. Jonah gets angry that Nineveh repents and God being compassionate when Jonah's sitting there, furious, he grows a tree to shade Jonah in that moment. And he, he essentially goes to Jonah in his compassion and, his, and his, his graciousness and says, hey, it's okay. This is what I wanted. I wanted them to repent. Now you repent. And when Jonah refuses and stays angry, the tree withers and dies. Right? Mm-hmm. Jonah's choosing his own anger and sinfulness over the Lord and his goodness. So, when we talk about God being slow to get anger, God is slow to anger, which means God will put up with people's betrayal for much longer than is actually reasonable. If we as human beings put up with people as long as God does, people would call us crazy and say that we are unhealthy and don't know how to set boundaries. <laughs> now, for us humans who are finite, we need to know how to set boundaries. And in some ways not be as slow to anger as God is. Because honestly, when we look at humanity, some people only learn through anger, through the lens of anger. And that's unfortunate because that means they probably didn't have a great upbringing. Uh, However, it's true that sometimes that's what happens. Now, God will always accept people who turn back to Him with soft hearts and genuine humility, no matter what they've done. But I don't ever want to have to face the anger and let Him and have Him leave me to my own devices because I've been there, done that. (laughs) BC, right? Don't want to have to go back there. So. This has been the beginning of God being slow to anger and what that looks like. Uh, We can trace this. If you guys really want to, we can continue to trace this theme throughout the prophets and through the ministry of Jesus and what Paul actually says about God's anger later in the letters. Um, And if not, that's okay too. We can move on to other things. But I'll let you guys decide that if you want to do that. Um, We can continue to work our way through it. But I'm going to pray and then we can get out of here. I didn't mean to go for an hour tonight. I thought this was going to be much shorter, and it's still right almost at an hour. Dang it. <laughs> uh, Don't worry, we won't get angry. <laughs> thank you. Uh, the character of God shining through all of our hearts tonight. So, Abba, we thank you again for tonight. We thank you that we got to take a closer look at your anger and what your anger actually looks like in the Bible, at least the first mentions of your anger and the pattern that you set forth with that. I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you. I ask that you would show us how to be slow to anger as you were slow to anger. I ask that you show us how to be obedient, give us the courage to be obedient and not walk in the ways of the world so that uh, you don't even have to be slow to (laughs) anger towards us. You could just be full of love uh, and compassion and graciousness. I thank you that You are a good and loving Father that knows just what we need when we need it. I thank you for the future plans of Highland Park. Again, we lift up Highland Park to you. We ask that you redeem this place, Lord. We declare that this place is yours. We ask that you set up a throne here to rule from and that this would be a place of of visitation and habitation for your presence uh, each and every day. We thank you for the people here, they are so worth it. They are your image. They are your likeness. Jesus died so that they could know how compassionate and gracious you are, how slow to anger you are, how loyal your love is to these people. And I pray that you would give us the courage to, to walk that out and show them just who you are. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son and your spirit. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Highland Park Community Church Podcast. We pray that you experienced the Holy Spirit in revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you've been impacted by our ministry, 
and would like to make a financial contribution, or you'd like to partner with us to reach the Highland Park community, visit us at www.myhpcc.net. We'll see you next time.